0: Oh, hello, New Life Manitou. I haven't seen you guys in a few weeks. We've been out of pocket, so I'm glad to see all of you this morning. Um, I don't, uh, I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to invite us to just center ourselves in prayer for just a moment. I, uh, I feel like this morning, I, I'm not quite sure, it feels unusual this morning does um, for me. And so, um, so Jesus, we bring that to you. We bring this to you and we ask, uh, this is all just a farce and it's all just a sham if we are memorializing a dead God or playing make-believe or talking to an imaginary friend or giving a lecture about history. We, um, We need your spirit to be coming and speaking the same life that raised Jesus from the dead into us. And so as best we know how right now in these moments, as wherever we are with you along the journey, we open ourselves just a little bit more to that and we say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I'm listening. I'm open. We ask, Lord, that you would come and speak for your children are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Amen. So uh, we are in our last week of our series on the minor prophets, what the ancient church called the Book of the Twelve. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Like yeah didn't I couldn't <laughs> turn him back we're going to get there matthew chapter twenty one actually though seriously, I want you to turn there. Um, today is also the beginning of Holy Week as you may not have uh, you may have recognized in the uh, church calendar it, it floats around every year in the calendar because it 's actually linked to the lunar calendar and, and to Passover rather than to like um, that, the solar calendar that we uh, follow. Um, and so uh, this is the week that Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem, where he stirs up enough controversy in his teaching and his protesting of the corrupt religious system, of his, his throwing the merchants and the traders out of the temple. Like, no more traders in here. Um, Jesus stirs up enough controversy this week to get himself killed on Friday. Um, and then the most remarkable thing happens uh, one week from today. Today, I won't ruin the surprise for you. Um, so, um, but how does the week begin? How does the week begin? Matthew chapter twenty-one, starting in verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a, a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anyone a, a, a says anything to you you shall say the lord needs them and he will send them and he will send them at once like he's going to send them back to you uh, verse 4 this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying And that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. So the swelling crowds of people, over 2 million people is what contemporary historian of the time would tell us, um, are gathering in Jerusalem. Two million people are gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover is what's happening. We're talking about the entire population of Houston, Texas, descending on an area that is like a quarter of Colorado Springs is what we're talking about here. And they're celebrating the annual holiday feast of divine revolution is what they're celebrating. That Israel's God back there. Let me tell you a story. Israel's God set captives free. He's the kind of God who overthrows the world's superpowers like he did long ago with Egypt and Pharaoh so that he can set people free. And here comes Jesus from the Mount of Olives riding into the city in this electrically charged atmosphere Christians throughout the centuries have called this, um, this moment the triumphal entry. We've said it even already today. Um, but on the surface of things, there's nothing really that triumphant, obviously, the obviously triumphant about it. Um, I'm afraid that our cartoons and our flannel graphs and even like our English translations right here um, have turned this into something of like a moment that's I think a little bit more romantic than what it really was. This is more like kind of a chaotic entry and a desperate entry because the people... Are um, are calling out to Jesus exactly what Joe's already mentioned to us this morning. He, uh, it's words from a group of psalms in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures called the Hallel. It's uh, six psalms, Psalm one thirteen through Psalm one eighteen, that are they they're sung. They're still sung, actually, to this day, um, at most of the major Jewish feasts. Um, and these six psalms, this cluster of six psalms, they wrap up. They start wrapping up like this. Psalm 118, um, this is, uh, as, it's, as these six psalms are wrapping up, verse 25 of 118, save us, Hoshia, we pray, nah, Hoshiah nah, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord." And the gospel writers, uh, have preserved the hebrew word for us a little like the word like abba or something it's the they it's like matthew can still hear the voices of the crowds ringing in his ears the, the, the cries of hosanna hosanna these are the lyrics of a psalm that uh, they're sung every year and the words have become like broken and desperate in this moment save us save us Na is, please, or now, save us, O son of David, verse 9. Are you the king? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Have you seen that we're oppressed? Have you seen that we're in the end of our ropes? Have you seen how our enemies are enslaving us? Have you seen how we're hopeless? We are desperate. We're hurting. Hoshiana, Hoshinah, save us. In who hoopsis Hos Hoshiana. With the highest, is what he'd say. By the highest, is maybe a way of translating it. Like, with all the power of the highest heavens, save us. This is not the dispassioned cry, uh, almost bored cry, of people, like, looking at their watches and, like, gently waving palm branches and then, like, wondering, when can we get out of here to go to Chili's? Um, You know, (laughs) This is actually like the most desperate cry of the human heart, is what it is. Um, This has all the hope and fear and intensity and anticipation that we all like long for in our most honest moments. Um, We need things to change. We want things to change. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it help us, save us, Oceania. Peck. <laughs> like we, we're we familiar with this just a little bit. We saw it in the news actually just a, a handful of weeks ago. We saw a couple of months ago uh, firsthand on January 6th, perhaps you remember it. We saw firsthand a group of people who are like desperate, like hungry, like for change, things to, ch- to change. And, um, we saw how quickly people who are desperate to change, marching on Washington, listening um, listening to a speech, and then coming, regardless of what was happening, um, coming and the scene turning to violence, the desperation of like, I need something to change, and it can quickly go south. It can go in the wrong direction. The crowds of desperate people can um, who feel like they are oppressed, whether... I'm not trying to talk about modern moment here. Um, they can turn violent quickly. The Romans knew about this. They knew that vi- that crowds of people who are desperate and hungry and need something to change, um, they knew that this can become like a spark in a tinderbox and things can get out of hand really, really fast. And how many people are coming to a, to a place the size of, a quarter of the size of Colorado Springs, two million people are coming to this place. And so um, this week before Passover, the Roman army is actually arriving in Jerusalem as well in force, like peacekeeping troops to make sure nothing gets out of hand. And so while Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem through the Eastern Gates, Pilate Pontius Pilate is actually arriving in the city through the western gates. A couple of scholars joined together to write a book, and uh, they ended up putting it this way. Um, On the opposite side of the city, from the west, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Idumea, Judea, and Samaria, entered Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry, And soldiers, Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's proclaimed the power of empire. And so from the west, you have Pilate, the recognized governor. Like, I'm the one in charge here. And he's like most likely mounted on like magnificent war horses of some kind. And from the east, you've got Jesus of Galilee, homeless, itinerant rabbi being hailed as king for some absurd reason, and riding on a donkey that he doesn't even own. Matthew says, verse four, that all of this took place to play rao, to fill up, to fill out, to um, what the prophet had said. And uh, the prophet that he's referring to is, of course, Zechariah. And so let's flip a couple of books back. Uh, in our Bibles to Zechariah Matthew flips back to uh, Malachi and then Malachi flips back to Zechariah and um, the part of Zechariah that Matthews actually referencing is what uh, we what we call chapter 9 um, the chapter numbers weren't there um, they were added like <laughs> in medieval Europe sometimes uh, but he's referencing chapter 9 but if you're flipping backwards just go ahead and stop at the very end of uh, Zechariah just like this page like the very last page of Zechariah um, chapter 14 uh, Um, to understand what Zechariah 9 is about. We really need to understand like what the whole book of Zechariah is about. And that shouldn't be very hard because we only have a handful of minutes and Zechariah is like the most difficult book in the Old Testament. Uh, (laughs) It shouldn't be that big of a deal. It's not, not, no joke, uh, Zechariah is like... uh, it's like the revelation of the Old Testament. It's kind of like the Book of Daniel, um, except without any of the familiar quaint stories that gives, like that we are from. There's no lion's den. There's no fiery furnace. There's no Daniel and his friends impressing the king by eating vegan. Uh, you know, <laughs> look, look, we're awesome. Um, no, I- instead, uh, like it's just like this, this hulking mass of an intimidating book. Um, Instead of familiar stories, you've got the first eight chapters of Zechariah are vision after vision of strange imagery. You've got like four colored horses, if that sounds familiar to anybody. You've got a giant flying scroll that's like three stories high. You've got women with stork wings carrying off another woman in a basket. You can look it up. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderfully weird. But um, So instead of trying to uh, glance at this book from the beginning forward, um, I think it might be helpful to just like start working our way backward through the book. I think that may give us uh, an idea of what the book is about. And so the last two verses of Zechariah actually read as follows. Chapter 14, verse 20. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses told you. <laughs> this is weird. Holy to Yahweh and the pots in the house of Yahweh shall be as bowls before the altar and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah and Judah shall be holy to Yahweh of armies so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh. Oh. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh of armies. On that day. I told you it's wonderfully weird. So Zechariah ends by talking about bells on horses and pots and boiled meat. <laughs> oh, and nobody trading in the temple. Uh-huh. Um What is he getting at here? Well, if we back up just a little bit in this chapter, we're gonna see that Zechariah is using battle imagery. He's using war imagery to talk about God becoming king over all of the world. And at the very tail end of this battle imagery in verse 16, actually, back up to verse 16, then everyone who survives, like this battle imagery, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, Yahweh of armies, and to keep the feast of booths. God is going to become king, and people from every nation are going to come and worship him at the festival of Sukkot, that climactic final feast in the Jewish calendar where everybody rests and Parties, no one does any work because God is residing with us and every need is met. It's like Eden every day. And that's the reason why the bells of the horses are holy, because those horses are bringing people from every nation to this cosmic party is what's happening. The reason why all of the pots in Jerusalem and in all the countryside, all the city the countryside everywhere is because there's going to be so much sacrificing and feasting that the temple is going to run out of dishware. <laughs> They're be like well, just grab every pot you can. you know, like we just need all of them are going to be holy to the Lord. We could say it this way. Zechariah ends with Eden everywhere and God as king if you want to know where Zechariah goes as a book. Everywhere is paradise. The bells and the horses are just as holy as the temple in Jerusalem. Everywhere there is party. Everywhere there is feast. Everywhere there is celebration. Because God has finally become what he's always meant to be. God is king. It's like the end of a fairy tale where like the king goes and sits on his throne and suddenly like the entire land becomes like green and lush and prosperous. The entire book of Zechariah is building up to this moment. All of the strange weird visions of the beginning of the book, those first eight chapters, all of them are like symbolic images that are anticipating this moment, the moment when Israel's God, Yahweh, finally becomes king over the world, defeating evil once and for all. That's the battle imagery. And ushering in cosmic party, (laughs) never-ending feast. And then we go back just a tiny bit further to, uh, oh, it's actually right here, uh, verse 3 of chapter 14. So we're almost at the beginning of this last chapter now. Then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half move southward. And then you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall shall reach Azale. And you shall, nobody knows where that is, by the way. (laughs) It's just the only time it shows up here. Um, It's somewhere in the east. Um, And as as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, then Yahweh, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. It's a compelling cascade of images right here. God is going to, verse three, he's going to fight against evil, and then verse four, and it starts on the Mount of Olives, and then he transforms the world. That's that's literally what the imagery is. It's like it's earthquakes. It's like tectonic plates shifting. It's north and south begin to like move away from each other, the end of uh, verse four. Um, because in a new valley splits from east to west, God is terraforming is what he's doing. It's the image, uh, God is changing the landscape. He's reshaping the world and it all becomes, verse 5, it becomes like a, a means of escape from danger is what it is. All of this is, like, if you didn't know, it's profoundly symbolic poetic language that the prophets like to use. But it's pointing us toward the reality that God is doing something profoundly new in the world. Verse 6 picks up on this. On that day there shall be no light cold, or frost. Many of your translations may say something very different. It's a very strange verse in Hebrew. Um, We don't have time to go down the rabbit hole. Verse seven, and there shall be a unique day which is known to Yahweh, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And so there's like Whatever's going on here, whatever the translation says, there's an interruption of normal nature cycles, and then there is a unique day, is what he's saying. It's not day, it's not night. Instead, you have light arriving at evening. Evening is when a new day begins in the Jewish tradition, if you didn't know. So instead of darkness coming at the beginning of a new day, we've got something like new creation Dawning. It's like Genesis 1 kind of imagery. Then, verse 8: On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue part of the year. No, all the time. In summer, as in winter. And so not only do you have mountains moving and valleys creating tunnels of safety, you've actually got new rivers flowing. Fresh water, life-giving water is flowing east and west out of Jerusalem perpetually, regardless of season. It's like a picture of Eden from Genesis 2 is what's going on here. The rivers that flow out of Eden is what's happening here. And then verse nine, and Yahweh will be king over all the earth. On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. This is how the book of Zechariah ends. It ends with Eden everywhere, and God is king. New creation's dawning, and endless life is like flowing from Jerusalem, all because God is terraforming. God is, uh, it's like God is the divine excavator. And uh, he, he's on the Mountain of Olives is where he starts, and then he transforms the landscape. <laughs> Move it, reshaping the world. Our... Our youngest daughter, um, Daisy, she loves excavators, if you didn't know. Um, When we moved into our new house, Joy took both the girls to uh, the store and let them pick out a little piece of artwork uh, for them too. And here's the picture that Daphne actually picked out, which none of this surprised me right here. Daphne loves everything pink, everything girly. yeah. But uh, that seems about right to me. But uh, this is what Daisy picked out. Uh, I kid you not, she loves excavators, not Not bulldozers, not backhoes, excavators. She knows the difference. She she was three when she picked this up. She likes all of them. (laughs) Like these unstoppable things that like can move dirt, can dig holes, can reshape the land. Excavators are like her fave. Um, These kinds of tools um, are almost the only way that we can imagine the world getting reshaped and remade. We believe that more power is how you reshape the world. Give me the power of a bulldozer. Give me the power of an excavator. This is the, actually the story of every superhero I can think of. <laughs> somebody gets zapped by gamma radiation, or somebody gets like bitten by a radioactive spider, or builds enough gadgets and armor. I'm thinking of Batman, not Iron Man. Um, and then... <laughs> Batman. Um, And then with all that power that they've suddenly got, they are able to reshape the world in some sort of like good way. And we imagine that, oh, the world's not the way I want it to be. If only I had more power, then I could change the world. Maybe not the world. Maybe that might be a little ambitious. But maybe I could change our world. Like our world. My family's world. My world. Like around me. I could fix these circumstances that are around me. I could solve that situation. I could repair that relationship. I could bring peace to the world. if <laughs> Like peace to the turmoil of my world. Um, and the problem is that I don't have enough power. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough. Um, we, haven't, we haven't been hit by like gamma rays. We haven't been hit by enough gamma rays in whatever form that takes to split the mountains north from south and to rescue those in danger and beat up the bad guys that need to be um, beat up. And so what we do is we pursue those gamma rays (laughs) however we can for most of our lives, most of our hours, most of our weeks. We're trying to get more like skills we're trying to get, like, if I'm just skilled more, if I just had enough money or resources, if I could just climb the network of people higher, if I could just network with people, maybe climb the ladder of my, of my career higher, we're like, we're building the excavator in some sort of way. We're putting together our power to solve whatever solution, whatever problem it is we think we have. And we're not necessarily doing it selfishly a lot of the times. A lot of times we want to help other people. We want to steer. I want to influence so that I can steer culture in a in a good direction. I want to I want to influence for Jesus, it's, and and but deep at, like in the deep parts of our hearts, a lot of times it's power, almost exclusively that we think is how we are going to reshape the world. And the dilemma that Zechariah presents us is that God arrives as king while everybody else, everybody that actually has power is, has been using it the wrong way. You don't have to flip to it on our way back to Zechariah 9. We're right on time. But um, in Zechariah 11, there's, it's verses 4 through 16 for the curious. Um, there's this bizarre enacted parable in Zechariah where um, Zechariah is um, talking about the people, the people without power under people's power are sheep. And there's the the rulers of the remnant and all the rulers of the nations, kings, all of them are bad shepherds. They're foolish shepherds, shepherds who who don't take care of their sheep. They eat their own sheep. Kings that are getting fat off of the people. They're just like using them for people, powerful people using people for their own purposes. And weirdly, the sheep actually like the bad shepherds taking advantage of them is what it says here in chapter eleven. Most of the time, we the sheep are not crying Hoshina! Most of us, for whatever reason, the bad sh- we actually like living slaughtered lives. But today, here comes Jesus from the Mount of Olives, riding into the city, and Jesus knows Zechariah fourteen. He knows Yahweh is King. And he's strategically doing something that Israel's God alone should be doing. And he has planted his feet on the Mount of Olives and he is about to reshape the world. And Jesus knows Zechariah 11. He knows the powerful end up as rulers. And they use their power for all kinds of wicked purposes. They are bad kings. They are foolish kings. And the sheep are foolish too. They, they're actually choosing. They actually prefer. I like living a slaughtered kind of life. And this same Jesus who is arriving is the very one who says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Zechariah is what Jesus is tapping into when he says good shepherd. Jesus is saying I am the good king and the good king lays down his he doesn't get off of the sheep. He lays down his life for his subject. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the desperate shouts of Hoshina, Hoshina, the gospel writers don't want us to miss the significance of what's happening here because he is fulfilling Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold your king. Who is king? God, God's the great, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I want us to recognize something really simple this morning. The only person with absolute status in the universe chose to borrow a Pinto rather than own a Ferrari. He chose to ease in on a donkey instead of dominating on a war horse. And this is what I want you to see. The only person with absolute power refused to bend the world to their will by breaking people. That's what God is like. God is like Jesus, guys. God does not break people to achieve his will in the world. I wish he would a lot of times. That'd be a lot simpler. Just break every break me too, you know, and just let's, let's just get this over with. God, just excavate the mountains, bulldoze armies, throw in some dynamite, like reshape the world. Well, that's all I can imagine God doing. Things are not the way they should be in the world, and the world needs to be terraformed. It needs to be remade. And so won't you just be the divine excavator, God? God, just use all of your power to remake the world. But here comes Jesus on a borrowed donkey from the Mount of Olives. He's fulfilling the prophet's words. He's showing them the answer to their cries, I am the good shepherd. I am the good king. I'm the one you are waiting for. I hear your cries of Hoshi You want me to save you? You want to be saved? You want to be safe? You want to experience peace? I will show you the way. I will show you what it looks like. To finish the quote from earlier, Jesus' procession deliberately countered what was happening on the other side of the city. Pilate's procession embodied the power, glory, and violence of the empire that ruled the world. And Jesus' procession embodied an alternative vision, the kingdom of God, humility, and nonviolence. So the western side of Jerusalem is swarming with all of the powers that we think reshape the world. You know, war, war horses and bulldozers and tanks, that's a triumphal entry right there. That's going to get some crap done in the world. And it makes the eastern side of Jerusalem look like a joke. Like Jesus' whole life of quiet, steady, faithful love, like it gets symbolized in a donkey ride, it's like he's wanting his followers to really understand and recognize that reshaping the world, truly doing it, reshaping the world is a slow and painful work and it's of self-giving love. Reshaping the world is the slow and painful work of self-giving love. And this lowly king riding in on on a donkey he has managed to do, like he has managed to reshape the world in a way that caesar nobody has ever been he, ever to ever managed to reshape the world. He has secured a kingdom. He is a people loyal to himself over 2,000 years from, from when he rode in. He shows us what actually reshapes and changes the world. And then he says this to us through his scripture, this is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, we have about two minutes left in the sermon, and I need you to lock in with me. I don't ask this very often. I need you to lock in with me for just a second. I'm telling you, I have this sense this morning. I, never, I don't say this very often. I have this sense that there are two people here, maybe not individuals, but there are two kinds of people here this morning that I want to address. The first is the person who says, nothing is going to change until I have more power. I just need more influence. I need more resources. I need more power. If, if I could just get an army and a war horse, some kind of excavator, then I could cha- change the landscape. But I'm just here to tell you this morning that the good shepherd had none of that. He had none of that. And he did not break people with power. He did not overpower his circumstances. He gave himself over to people in love, instead of dominating over people with power. If you're that first person, I just need to tell you that if you really want to reshape the world, like in a lasting, meaningful, positive way, lay down your life for your sister. Lay down your life for your brother. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, I can promise you that it's not going to be painless, but it is the way. It's the way to life for them and for you. The second person in the room, uh, it might be the same person. Um, This is the person who is finally desperate enough to, this is maybe the first Sunday that you've actually been from the depths of your heart crying, Oceania, save me. This has gotten unmanageable. I'm tired of being slaughtered and eaten. The landscape of the world has to change. And the Spirit of God is agreeing with you this morning. The landscape does need to change. And it starts with the inner landscape of you. Maybe the world around you isn't shifting yet, (laughs) but... Maybe it's not shifting yet because the spirit is actually terraforming the world inside of you first. You lay down your life for them is the invitation. And this is how your life gets terraformed because Jesus has lays down he lays down his life for you. I need you to hear this morning whoever you are, you are important and valuable, and loved beyond anything you can conceive. God loves you endlessly. And, and the first thing that God is interested in reshaping and forming is he's interested in reshaping the world within you. And I know that's painful. God shares the pain is actually the good news that what this entire week is going to be about. God shares the pain. That is the journey to this Friday. That's what it's all about. You are endlessly loved, but God refuses to break you. He refuses. He doesn't use his power that way. He wants you to be a child and whole and complete. And so you can yield this morning. You can let go you can believe. <laughs> and I'll go, ahead and run, I'll go ahead and ruin the surprise ending for this week. The, um, there's new life fresh from the tomb coming when you do that.